Father, we come now to sit at your feet and receive your living word. We pray again that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Make us hungry for this food. Give us a desire to taste and smell your good provisions. May we receive the nourishment, and by it may we grow. Give us understanding and cause us to know the truth and to order our life accordingly. Help us to be quick to repent and to obey. Deliver us from the hardness of heart. Give us grace to hear meekly, to receive with pure affection, and to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, and to amend our lives according to your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 29, hear now the word of the living God. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And thus far the reading of God's Word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. I intend to preach a short series on the subject of words, and today I want to introduce the topic and consider the importance and the power of words, because our words do things. Sometimes they do good things, sometimes they do bad things, but they do things. And the Bible addresses many subjects, great and small the micro and the macro. It's concerned with the historical. It's concerned with the national and world events. It speaks to church and family matters. It also expresses concern with personal ethics and behavior. We must remember that big things are always made up of little things. That's why we are called to be faithful in little things. We're part of many things that are bigger than us. Again, national, local community, church, family, work, school. Yet we remain personally accountable to God for our individual words and actions. Now, most of the subjects in the Bible need to be visited and revisited from time to time because they address issues that come up on a regular basis. We need to be reminded of what we already know because we're prone to forget, and we need to add to that knowledge with new understanding and wisdom because that's how we grow. So sometimes when we hear a subject and we think, oh, I've heard these kinds of things before, We might be tempted to tune out, but this is really an opportunity to seize a moment to say, what can I add to my knowledge? What can I be stirred up about? What new ideas and perspectives can I gain on this subject? Because the Word of God is living. 
The Holy Spirit is at work with His Word, uh, applying it to us. And our circumstances are different than they were the last time we considered this subject. Our perspective has changed. Hopefully we have matured and grown and therefore we're capable of understanding even more. And since talking is something that we do every day, if we're not careful, we can easily forget what God says about our words and how they impact others. When God speaks and acts, His words and His actions are consistent. He doesn't say one thing and do another. His words are a sort of transcript of His character. When someone's words and actions aren't consistent with one another, we very likely will consider that person to be a hypocrite or a liar. This is because, and this is important, words are a form of behavior. Oh, well, I was just talking. I just didn't, I didn't mean anything by that. Yes, you did. Words are a form of behavior. When we speak, we're doing something. Words are a a reflection of who we are. They reveal our hearts. As Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And the mouth is going to be the portal whereby that heart is revealed. Luke chapter 6, verse 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so our words matter. Therefore, blessings and curses, along with promises and threats, must be taken seriously. Blessings and promises actually do something. They bring comfort. They bring hope. They bring joy. Curses and threats also actually do something. They bring fear and anxiety and sorrow and much more. We can no more take back words spoken any more than we can take back acts committed. Words and acts can be forgiven, but they cannot be recalled. So when we say something and then later say, I didn't really mean that, we see something of the incongruity between our hearts and our words and our actions. God says that His Word goes forth and it will not return to Him void. No words, it's going to do what it was sent to do. And likewise, our words will do things that they're sent to do. Whether we intend it or think about it or are careless with it, words are powerful and words do things. But we often have a lot of empty chatter what the Bible calls idle words. My grandmother always had a parakeet. We went to her house pretty much every Sunday afternoon. And uh, she raised six children during the the Depression, never had a driver's license, Uh, lived in a little house there and didn't get out a whole lot. Um, But she always had a cup of coffee, a cigarette, a cake, and her parakeet there at the dining room table. And uh, the parakeet's name was Jerry, and I think there were at least three Jerrys while I was growing up. They were all named Jerry. Uh, so one died, she got another Jerry, and they, she taught them to talk. 
And Jerry would say things like, Jerry's a pretty boy. Um, and even though they had no idea what they were saying, they liked to entertain themselves by talking. And particularly if you left the room, the, the talk would pick up. Uh, they liked to hear themselves talk. Um, our own talking is often the biggest and the emptiest form of amusement that we occupy ourselves and others with. We're always talking. Of course, a lot of what we say is good, and it's necessary. God gave mankind the gift of speech in order to have fellowship with Him, so that we might know Him and, and, and know Him better, and so that we might respond to Him with prayer and with praise. Advanced linguistic abilities places man above the lower creation and facilitates dominion over the creation. Interpersonal communication is critical to our lives in community, indeed, to what we consider civilization itself. And so the power, usefulness, and even beauty of words can be simply remarkable. But in a fallen world, and especially in our spiritually barren culture, what God has granted to man as a blessing has also become a tremendous curse. Both David and Paul address the moral quality of, of the way sinners talk in Psalm 5, 9, and Romans 3, 13, where it's quoted, their, their throat is an open sepulcher, with their tongues they have used deceit, the poison of asp is under their lips. That's a description of sinful man. Man's casual banter is often deadly uh, and is a display of his death. Standing before the holy presence of God... Isaiah's woeful conviction of sin focused immediately on this aspect of his own sinfulness. And so he cries out, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. There's the problem. We sin with our mouths, our words, our lips, our tongues. And we need to remember, as we're made in the image of God, that words are powerful. And so I want us to kind of back up a moment and look at this from another angle about the positive power of words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Genesis 1-3, think of this. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Hebrews 1-3, speaking of Jesus, who being the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of His person and upholding or sustaining all things, how? By the word of His power. Words are symbols of thought and of intent and of action. As I said, they are themselves a form of behavior. God's words are powerful, and so as God's words go forth, they change the world. They create or generate new things. They sustain the old things, and even in the resurrection and in the new birth, regenerate dead things. And as creatures who are made in the image of God and having been given the unique ability of language, our words are also powerful. 
They too are forms of behavior that reveal our character. Our words can edify or wound. Violent words are a form of violence. If I threaten to punch you in the nose, that is an act of violence. Soothing words are a form of comfort. Comfort one another with these words. The old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is not true. Words have the power to bless and to curse. Words regularly do a great deal of harm, and we have all felt the stinging blow of unkind words. Psalm 64.3, wicked men sharpen their tongues like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words. Proverbs 2, in in verses 1-7, through we're told that words have the power to impart the fear of the Lord and knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Words accomplish actual righteousness or else they may commit actual sins. The quality of our words has the power to affect the situation. Proverbs 15.1, one that we should all take heed to since we are so often in conflict with others. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Is that true? Have you experienced that? I have. The word preached is especially powerful since it is men speaking the Word of God. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which also effectively works in you, who believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Power comes forth from God's Word. Sitting under the Word of God has that kind of impact on our lives. In Hebrews 11.3, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed, how? By the Word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. What does that mean they were made of? The thing, everything you see, what is it made of? Words. God's words. So too, those, Matthew 4.20, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, Jesus says, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. This, is, this powerful word, we're told, also begets us. That is, brings us to life. As we read in 1 Peter 1, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the good news. This is the gospel that was preached to you. Moreover, the word that begat us also sustains us. Man lives not by bread alone, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is the same word that works in us all the way to the core. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living 
and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's the Word of God. And having received the power of the Word of God, it must now reside in us and pour forth from us to do, continue to do its mighty work. That's why we speak forth the words of God. Colossians 3, verse 16 and 17, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. All your words and all your deeds are to be reflections of Him. And so I want to get started this morning on what Scripture has to say about our words, our tongues, our mouths, our lips. In the Bible, the tongue is referred to in two general ways. The tongue and sin, and the tongue and sanctification or holiness. And so, there are things that we should not do with our tongues, as well as things we should do with our tongues. And like our other actions, our words produce good fruit or bad fruit. Words have consequences. What we should do, what we should not do is important. What we should do is important, and we see this in our text today. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that is, to build up the situation, to build up people, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And skipping down to verse 31, 32, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We also see this as an example. We really see it all over the Scriptures. Uh, but in the wisdom literature of Proverbs chapter 15, some selected verses here. Verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Verse 2, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. Verse 4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but the perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Verse 7, the lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the fool does not do so. Verse 28, the heart of the righteous studies how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours, pours forth evil. Now, of course, we're all indicted here. No one's off the hook. No one can check out. No one can say, well, this is one of those sermon series that I don't have to listen to since I don't struggle with the tongue. I don't sin with my speech. James 3, which was part of our reading today, makes this point clear. We all stumble in many things, but if anyone does not stumble in word, that is in what he says, he is a perfect or a mature man able to bridle the whole body. The fact that this includes every one of us doesn't mean that it provides any one of us with an excuse. Rather, it serves as part of the reason why it's necessary to look at this subject again and again. There may be some difficulty here, and it would not be due to awareness of guilt, rather due to the deceitfulness of sin. 
In other words, I may be deceived about myself and may not think, oh, well, I'm not doing too bad here. I can't think of anything major lately. That's when we're vulnerable, by the way. We have a tendency to hear such things and begin to apply the sermon to others, to those around us, to those we think who really need to hear this. In this, we forget that we hear the Word of God on this subject, as we hear the Word of God on this subject, as we read the Bible about the tongue and our speech, our guilt is before us first of all. Everyone is guilty here. We, I, am guilty. This is where we need to begin or else we've missed the thrust of this text. Admittedly in this, we need the Spirit of God to apply it to us. So, we're about a little more than two-thirds of the way here through the sermon. We're just going to stop for a moment. I'd like you to bow your heads. Lord, we come before you now and ask that the Holy Spirit would take the things we're about to hear as well as in the coming weeks, and apply them to me. Help me to hear. Help me to see. Help me to look more deeply at myself and how I use my words, whether they glorify you, whether they hurt others. Help me, Lord, to learn to more and more bring my tongue into submission to you and your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The most severe sin in the Bible is the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it pertains to the tongue. After Jesus referred to and warned about this type of blasphemy, to speak evil of the Holy Spirit, He keeps on talking about talking. He keeps teaching about the tongue. He referred to good trees and bad trees, which yield good fruit and bad fruit. All of this was in reference to speech, to words. He continued in Matthew 3, verse 34, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so you have certain things laid up on the inside. You have your own treasure. Your mouth reveals what you really are. These are the things that define you. They exegete you. They expose you to others. And so your mouth is your resume or your biography, your blog. And as we've seen, the way in which we speak according to Christ is symptomatic of the kind of underlying character we have in God's eyes. And as such, it is a fair indicator which our ultimate judge will use to evaluate us. Just a few verses before Jesus had explained this principle, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12:24. The words which we use and the manner in which we use them reflects the spiritual condition of our innermost heart. The same insightful but indicting truth about us was repeated by Jesus elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel when he said in chapter 15, verse 18, The things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these are the things that make a man unclean. And so, where I want us to begin this study, again, this is introductory, is with the little things. Have you ever stopped to think about the kinds of things which come forth from your own mouth? Just listen to yourself. I want you to imagine 
Uh, we're going to hang a recording device around your neck for a day. And it's going to pick up everything you say. Perhaps you've amused yourself and others filling up a lot of time talking. But I want to ask, playing back that recording probably wouldn't be nearly as amusing, don't you think? I said that? Ooh. And notice this, our sin and shame isn't simply to be found in the serious comments that we've meant to communicate. Those things we gave plenty of reflection and communicated with sincerity, in which there's already an abundant reproach, but all the more in our idle words. The trifles, the flippant notations, the merely passing remarks, the little white lies, the insincere promises, the self-serving flatteries, the comic sarcasms, and the I-was-only-kidding comments. Matthew 12, 36 and 37, But I say to you, Jesus says, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus knew very well about our useless chatter. That's why he was referring, what he was referring to when he spoke of every idle word. The Greek word for idle literally means without work, unemployed, and thus to be careless and unfruitful. Words which are idle are those which aren't intended to accomplish anything. They're vacuous, not spoken with any serious intent. Idle words are simply kind of a form of amusement. And God's scrutiny over our behavior is going to be so thorough, according to the Savior, that even these little amusements in our speech will come under the microscope of God's omniscient judgment. So, it's a simple question this morning as we begin. We're going to look at any number of ways to use our words in powerful, positive ways, as well as any number of ways we can sin with our mouths. But let's begin with... Do you talk too much? Are your words truthful? Are they harsh, malicious, uncharitable, kind, humble, careless, cautious, fair, foolish, boastful, honest, sincere? Because Christ is concerned about every word, every idle word. Answering such questions as these is for every spiritually sensitive believer A painful, humbling, and convicting exercise. James understood all too well, writing in his epistle in chapter 3, verse 2, All of us stumble in many ways. But if anyone is never at fault in what he says, then he is fully mature and able to bridle his whole body also. Jesus never, ever sinned with his words. He didn't sin at all. But that's where we would have first seen it, is in his words. But his words, his actions, were perfectly consistent and sinless. Father, we pray for sanctification, for growth in grace. We realize that it won't come as an imputed gift the way justification came. There must be a putting off of the old man and a putting on of the new man. 
Give us the desire and the strength to put, to put on, to grow in grace, and especially as it is revealed by our words. May this take place even today, first in our hearts and thoughts, and then in our words and actions, and finally in our relationships with others and in the whole, our whole manner of life. Forgive us for grieving or quenching your Holy Spirit so often with our words. Fill us with your word and spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A little change in my plans here, something I'm going to do as we prepare to come to the table. I like to usually connect the sermon to what we're about to do at the table, and certainly uh, how we live and how we use our words uh, is, is very critical to us understanding what it means, for example, when we come to the table and make, have covenant renewal and say to the Lord, yes, I'm yours, and, and, and to hear the words of institution and to remember what the Lord said to us. So we hear his words, and then we are uh, offering up words uh, in the process. But I want to call your attention to the piece on the back of your order of worship. You don't necessarily have to turn there. I'm going to read this because I, uh, sometimes I know these are here and I, I trust you read them. But I want to emphasize them uh, this morning to remind us of why we're here and what we're doing and how important it is. The word church, uh, by the way, this is a, a piece I wrote for the, the book, uh, The Church-Friendly Family, and this is in the opening chapter. The word church encompasses a great deal. The church is an organism and an organization. We go to church and we are at church. We sit in the church and we don't run in the church, and yet the church is invisible. The church is one and the church is many. It has a history and a future. It's both universal and local. The church is a body, a bride, a flock, an olive tree, and a household. We join churches and we leave churches. The church is militant and it is eschatological. And there's much more that we can say about the church. God has placed his church at the center and the summit of the world. The church is comprised of the people of God called out of the world into union with the crucified and risen Lord. As God's people, his new humanity, we are an outpost of heaven on earth. We are marked out by baptism in the triune name. We gather around his table to feast, and we declare our common faith in Jesus Christ, who is now seated at the Father's right hand in heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords. The Lord Jesus rules over all things for the sake of the church, which in turn exists for the sake of the world. Calvin writes, because it is now our intention to discuss the visible church, let us learn from the simple title, Mother, how useful, indeed how necessary it is that we should know her. For there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her breast, and lastly, until she keep us under her care and guidance until, putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. Our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all our lives. We have formally vowed before God and one another to be united to the church of Jesus Christ. We have said, I do, in obedience to the word of God, uniting ourselves with this body of believers in submission to the elders and one another for service to those who are of the household of faith and for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ.
Many have devalued the church. It is devalued by corruption within, involving both leadership and laity. It is devalued by a lack of understanding of her importance and place in the world and in the life of God's people. It has been trivialized by shallowness and silliness. It has been compromised by seeking the approval of the world. Indeed, it is thought of as optional by many individual Christians who can take it or leave it, since they feel no real sense of obligation to the church. But the Bible teaches us that the church is the center of the world, the nursery of Christ's kingdom. It is the most important institution on earth because it is the people of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. With the church and through the church, societies live and die, rise and fall. Almighty God, who spoke to the prophets that they might make your will and purpose known, bless your church, the pillar and the ground of the truth, the guardian of your word. Conform our minds to yours. Make our lips speak your truth. Take our hearts and kindle them with love for you. Manifest that same love in us as we love one another. What we do not know, teach us, and what we do not have, give us, and what we are not, make us, for Jesus Christ's sake. Grant us, Lord, that from the written word and by our spoken word, men and women may come to see the incarnate word through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray your blessings now on our feast today as we continue to worship and commune and rest and rejoice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth the bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Amen.